You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and a volunteer with LLS. And thank you so much for all of you for joining us today. Today, we're joined by Dr. Brad Zebrak, who is a professor of social work at the University of Michigan School of Social Work in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Brad, thanks for joining us. Sure. Pleasure to be here, Ken. So typically, or very commonly, people talk about AYA adolescents and young adults. And, and today we're really going to focus on young adults. But I wanted to ask you, are there cutoffs or, you know, what group are we really talking about? Yeah, that's a great question, Ken. I want to start just by distinguishing there are kind of two separate groups when we talk about AYA or adolescent, young adult. You know, the first group, are, I think the more conventional, the traditional group that people think about are the young adult survivors of childhood cancer. And you know, since the 70s, 80s, there's been a great, you know, body of literature that, that's focused on that group. But around the mid, around 2000, the mid 2000s, there began to be a focus on another group, which are the adolescents and young adults who are diagnosed as adolescents or young adults. And from both clinical and research perspectives, there began to emerge a sense that while there are some, there is some crossover in the experiences of those two groups, for teenagers and young adults who are diagnosed with cancer when they are a teenager or a young adult, there are some unique aspects of that experience that are different from the childhood cancer survivors and, and are also very different from older adults diagnosed with cancer. And I think we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about that today. Yeah. Along those lines, for that group, I mean, more generally, when you look at just human development, what are the major, some people might say, tasks of that part of our lives? just as a preface to talking about how the cancer experience may affect those? Yeah, great question. You know, the NCI defines an adolescent young adult as a young person diagnosed with cancer between the ages of 15 and 39. So you're right. There's a great amount of heterogeneity within that age range, you know, in terms of human development, in terms of cognitive development, you know, even biology, different social and environmental conditions that young people live within. But, you know, in essence, you know, and anyone who's a parent of a teenager knows this, you know, the body is changing. The look to the outside world to start to find one's place in that world, making new friends, entering into new relationships, including, you know, intimate, loving sexual relationships for the very first time you know, that, that struggle of wanting to be independent and yet still relying on parents and family members. So that's quite a, an internal struggle that, that young people are going on. You know, they get to the end of high school. Now they have to start thinking about, you know, the next step of their lives. Are they going to find a job? Do they want to go on to higher education? What about a family? What about partners in life? These are all the, you know, the, the characteristics that typically define, you know, people in this age group, having small children. And then when you juxtapose that diagnosis and treatment for cancer on top of that, I think we really want to, uh, you know, it's important to understand that juxtaposition of, you know, what young people are dealing with in their lives and then how cancer across a continuum from diagnosis through treatment and, you know, even transitions to off-treatment survival or perhaps even the end of life 
the more we can understand that juxtaposition, I think um, we're, we're more prepared to provide high quality care. So, it, you know, I'd like to sort of take advantage of this opportunity, having you as a very sensitive expert to all these topics. Let me ask you, is it okay to talk about your own cancer survivorship? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of my work, a lot of what I'm able to talk about these days is informed by my own experience as a young adult diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 25. That then stimulated my interest in the field of social work. So I practiced as a clinical social worker in both pediatric and adult centers. And then at a certain point made that jump to the academic world and uh, the, the training as an investigator. Yeah. So along those lines, if, when you take you were talking about people that have, let's say, perhaps finished college and are sort of starting the next part of their life. And I want to get right into some of those key topics here. Body image, sexuality and intimacy. What do you hear from clients you've counseled and, and just in your own work about the challenges uh, for those very important parts of our life? Yeah, those are those are you know two key areas: the the body image, you know, and as it relates then to developing intimate relations, you know, these are all key important developmental factors for young people. And you know, I think that that's what part of you know focusing on body image and sexuality, for example, I think are two issues that really distinguish this AYA group from any other. You know, Julia Rowland, uh, developmental psychologist, former director of the uh, Office of Cancer Survivorship for NCI, did some great work about 30 years ago where she really identified five domains in which all cancer patients' lives are disrupted. And yet the experience of those disruptions is very different depending on the time in life. You know, if you're 21 years old, diagnosed with high-risk leukemia, going through two to three years worth of, you know, intensive chemotherapy, you can just imagine what life is like for that young person. Maybe they were in college, maybe they've got a job, maybe they hadn't even entered the job market yet, and now they're disrupted for this two or three-year phase of their lives. You know, we're in contrast, you know, the 70-year-old the diagnosed with that same cancer is going, they're, they're, in, they're perhaps already in retirement or nearing the end of their work career and are faced with very different challenges. And, you know, these disruptions that occur early in life can have long-term implications. So, you know, to speak to the issue of, you know, altered relationships and body image and integrity, you know, again, coming back to young people, um, you know, trying to get a sense of who they are in their lives, who they want to be. And some of the therapy can be physically disfiguring. Young people, as far as two, I did a study looking at sexual function, for example, in young adult survivors. And even as long as two years post-diagnosis, some of those young people were still talking about difficulties in sexual function, and what was an, an interesting finding in that study was the differences between males and females. While females reported more difficulties in sexual function related to their cancer treatment, it was the males who were more psychologically distressed by those implications. So how does that translate to actually the distress? How does it translate to relationships? Are they more difficult for young cancer survivors? Are they more complicated? And I also want to ask you briefly, how are we doing? I'm an oncologist. How are we oncologists doing in terms of providing support around those issues? Well, the first part of your question, you know, what is it that the young people are struggling with? You know, one, one issue is they talk a lot about is this notion of disclosure, how do I tell my friends? How do I tell someone who I'm dating? 
how do I tell my spouse, partner who, you know, we've been together for maybe a short period of time or even a long period of time, how do I have these conversations? Young people just don't, haven't developed yet the life skills. They haven't been on the planet long enough to really have opportunities to, to figure out how to deal with these really challenging aspects of their life. Some of them try to do it on their own. Some of them try to figure it out on their own. And some of them are very successful in doing that. But others really could use assistance from a healthcare provider, a social worker, a mental health provider to just kind of help coach them through that. You know, in terms of the care, I think when these young people are diagnosed and treated in, in an academic center or a, a center where there's a lot of resources and there's a multidisciplinary team that's attending to cancer care, they're more likely to get some of their, their needs identified and uh, taken care of. But we do know that somewhere between 75 and 80% of all adolescents and young adults are treated in a community setting. So, you know, I think the issue of having care providers who are trained in psychosocial assessment and treatment and follow-up is really a key component of providing a, a real comprehensive approach to care. The other you know, the issue related to that that's so important is that we know that when we don't attend to those psychological and social, those distressing aspects of care, it has implications for things like adherence to therapy, completion of therapy. You know, as we move to things like oral chemotherapeutics that now young people are responsible for doing at home or all cancer patients, you know, now have to do at home. Again, these young people feel unskilled and unprepared in how to do that. So being able to provide an adequate level of support from healthcare providers is important. So it is challenging at times to bring up people that are not in the mental health field to bring up sexuality and intimacy. So I just wanted to get a strategy from you for oncologists, for oncology nurses, oncology social workers. What are some ways to bring up sexuality in a way that's likely to get a, a meaningful response and a meaningful dialogue? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, starting off just asking directly of the patient, ask about their relationships, ask about partners, spouses, Try to stay away from sort of assumptions about gender. If you're with a male patient, don't assume female, vice versa. You know, our science around human sexuality is so much more sophisticated now than it used to be. And we have the knowledge base around things like the distinction between biological sex and gender, gender identification, gender expression. And such a key part of, of medical care is having a trusting relationship between the healthcare provider and the patient. So being able to use open language, direct language, and then if, you know, I would say to a healthcare provider, if this is not something you're comfortable with, then to be able to refer that patient to some other provider in your system who can address some of these issues related to sex and sexuality in a more direct way with the patient. I want to ask you about relationships with parents and family, because again, often these are, especially in late teens, early 20s, young people that are launching into their own lives in, in independence. What effect does a major illness like cancer have on that transition? Yeah, that's a great question, Ken. Uh, you know, what young people have said to me are things like, you know, my friends can only understand up to a certain point, or even my family can only understand what I'm going through up to a certain point. And a lot of young people have talked about the benefits of also having an opportunity to meet some other cancer survivor, someone who's close to them in their age, who kind of gets gets it. You know, they even use that term, they get it. 
what are some of the other struggles. Certainly, you know, the love that a family can continue to share with their child is important. You know, but I guess something I would say to, you know, parents, for example, is, you know, don't don't feel like you have to be the be all to end all. It, and it's again, I'm a parent of a teenager right now and there's a real finite limit, you know, to what I can talk about with my daughter. But you know, being able, you know, for her to have other options to bring up issues that she may be uncomfortable to talk to with me, you know, is is, is important. You have to say it reminds me also about the beauty of a multidisciplinary team, because I often found that my nurse would have a much different connection with some of my patients than I would in, yeah. in a very positive way. So thank you for sharing that. You know, one of the notes that I made ahead of talking with you is, you know, we talk about people not only bouncing back after cancer, but even the idea of bouncing forward, you know, that uh, sort of benefit finding. What have you seen in that way? Yeah, you're raising a really key point for young people with cancer. And I think maybe this is maybe something that translates across all ages is, the, is this notion of wanting to feel normal and the challenges that young people talk about wanting to feel normal. And, you know, some of them think about the goal of, well, I want to get back to normal after my cancer therapy. Let's get back to normal. And while that may be an option or a reality for some, it's also not for others. So the literature around coping with cancer behavioral coping with cancer suggests that working with young people to help them acknowledge the cancer and how it fits into their life. Some people have used the term acceptance, and I want to distinguish that from this assumption of, well, or of a positive attitude. You know, people often talk about, well, you have a positive attitude that will get you through cancer. And I'd kind of like to redefine that you know, to help people recognize the realities of what they're going through, what they might go through. You don't want to squash their dreams. And yet there's a, that's a fine balance between that and helping them recognize what's going to be a reality. Again, you're talking to teenagers and you're talking to young people who, even without cancer, have may have grandiose ideas of what they want to do. You know, for for years, I wanted to be a baseball player. I stunk. <laughs> I couldn't hit the ball. I couldn't throw the ball. But I I love baseball, and you know, for a time, I thought I'd pursue that. So you know, that's a normal part of development. But you know, also a kid who has a you know an, an amputation of an arm, of course, that's not going to be a reality. And now helping them think about what other options might be available to them in their lives, talking to them, but also exposing them to opportunities. I have a colleague who works with the Children's Brain Tumor Foundation in New York City, and they do a wonderful program to explore options in the employment and career domain for survivors of childhood brain tumors. And that that's a big challenge in and of itself. And one of the opportunities they provide for those young people are internships, field internship placements in businesses and companies in New York City. So th those young people can get exposed to opportunities and really, you know, it's one thing to talk to them about it, but it's another thing to really put them in an experience that they can then figure out for them themselves what may be realistic or not, uh, you know, or quote unquote, what may be the, a new normal for them as they move forward in their lives. Let me ask you about financial health and financial toxicity. It's something that, you know, we tend to talk about in medical oncology or, or try to think about. Are the financial toxicities, the career toxicities more prominent in young adult survivors? I think they are. And they're being compounded, being compounded by you know, the rates of employment opportunities for young people generally in the United States. In the last 
15 years, we've seen a substantial decrease, a significant decrease in employment opportunities for young people. The employment opportunities that are afforded them oftentimes are minimal or even some of the, the, you know, so quote unquote, nicer jobs, even the benefits packages are not what we're being offered to earlier generations. So this millennial generation today is really confronted with some difficult challenges in the labor force. So now when you compound that cancer diagnosis and therapy, you know, young people are now having to think about, you know, how do I account for a one or two year gap in my resume? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do I talk about that with an employer? And establishing oneself in their career, in their ability to uh, be gainfully employed is, is critically, even more so important for young people than it is for people who already may have a track you know, an employment track record. How do you counsel young adults facing just that issue? I mean, they've been out of the workforce. They then go to interview. How might they handle it uh, optimally? You know, again, I don't even pretend to be an expert when I'm talking to young people around some of these these issues. You know, I think connecting, again, back to connecting them with other young people to hear the strategies that other young people have used to, you know, address that issue of the gap on their resume, how they've prepared themselves for job interviews, what strategies they've used to overcome their experience, you know. There's a great book written by Carol Rosenthal, a, um, a young adult survivor. She, In her book, she talks about this thing called Ramanomics, that as a young breast cancer patient, she actually had to revert to eating a diet of ramen in order to save money because you know she couldn't really afford to miss work because when she missed work then you know if work conflicted with a chemotherapy appointment you know then she wouldn't get paid so she had to come up with all these different financial strategies in order to move forward in her life I want to ask you a little bit about late and long term effects both physical and psychosocial for young adult survivors and some of them being now 10 20 30 40 years out what have you seen yeah, it's a challenging area right now because for young people who are treated in a pediatric facility, chances are they're treated in a, in a children's hospital. Oftentimes, those oncology hematology units have a, a long-term survivors follow-up clinic. So, in, in some ways, the transition of their post-treatment care is somewhat seamless. But then it gets to be more difficult if you're a young adult survivor who lives, you know, hundreds of miles away from that facility where you were treated. So now, you know, traveling back and forth to that hospital where you're treated for cancer doesn't really make sense. So now we're talking about long-term follow-up care through primary care, which is also pretty much long-term follow-up for young adults who are treated in an adult care facility. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of emerging models to support the transition of cancer patients from their oncologic care to primary care. But most of the time, this is a cold handoff. The development of survivorship care plans has been one strategy so that when a patient leaves their cancer treatment facility, they're sort of armed with a booklet that's supposed to guide them on what to do next. And, you know, the jury is really out, you know, empirically as to the, you know, the efficacy of those cancer survivorship care plans. My sense, at least as a, you know, my bias as a social worker is that these young people need life plans to help yep, them yep. transition, but not just the medical, physical late effects, but the, the psychological and social as well. I'm seeing some, some places in the country where there's a little bit more of a warm handoff between the oncologic care and primary care. 
Because we know a lot of these primary care providers, what they tell us is that they're not really equipped uh, and knowledgeable around the intricacies and the long-term late effects and risks as they relate to cancer therapy. So I think at both the provider level, as well as at the patient level, being able to educate and prepare these folks um, is, is still still in our future. It's an opportunity for growth. Going back to the topic of growth, again, you, you shared a little bit of your own story, how eventually you, you, know, you, you, you went into, into the human services and, and really providing direct care and, and also research. Have you seen that also with other young cancer survivors where really um, the cancer experience, again, was a, a catalyst for them to move on with their life in very positive ways? Yeah, I think for many, that's the case. But for some also, when cancer treatment is over, they want to tie it up, put a bow on the top and just move on. We, we often hear some people don't like that term, for example, cancer survivor. They, they want to move beyond that experience. And, and for some of those young people, they are successful in doing that. Cancer is something that happened to them in the past, and they're able to move on in their lives. There are others who kind of struggle, continue to struggle. Uh, they want to put it behind them, but they can't. And there are others who really use it as a stimulus, as a, as a motivator for the next steps in their lives. You know, coming again back to the developmental framework, you know, to understand adolescents and young adults, you know, they're figuring out what's going to happen next. And to be able to turn to guides, either health professionals or other young survivors who've been through that experience already can provide them with, you know, great suggestions and feedback and guidance on where they might be go uh, go forward but you know it's coming back to that notion of accepting cancer acknowledge that you know this is something crappy that happened in 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 your life um you can you can forget about it and move on with it and that might be fine for you but how might you use it as a as a, and integrate it into the person that you are and identify it as a strength. You know, the, these young people have learned in, incredible coping mechanisms for challenges to move forward in life. And, and, and that's, a, that's a real strength and, and opportunity for them to help them as they move into adulthood. To say that is a, I mean, wonderfully said. Let me ask you one last question as we just wrap up. But in that process, again, perhaps even try to promote that process of using those incredible skills that they've developed that were developed in a situation they no one wanted them to be in. But how can family and friends and, for that matter, medical professionals best support uh, young adult survivors? Being positive, being encouraging of young people, listening to what their goals and dreams and visions are for the future. You know, again, it's, I know from the, the parent or supporter family point of view, it can be a, a struggle if you're looking at your kid and they're still talking about these dreams that you think are, are not realistic for them. And, you know, I guess what I would suggest is, again, you know, not to squash those dreams, but to just encourage movement forward step by step. Listen, a, a kid isn't going to become a, a doctor a week after they finish cancer therapy. You know, it's, it takes years to you know, move into a job like that. So just, just accept, you know, accept where young people are, where they're at and, and remain positive and encouraging, you know, if, again, back to those of us who are, you know, who, who work with teenagers or, you know, have teens in, in the house, you know, whenever they do something that we think is really stupid, you know, and, and we ask them why they did that, you know, what's their answer? I don't know. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. You know, and, and they're, 
And they really don't know because, you know, until the age of 25, that prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. You know, impulse control, decision making is still kind of warped until that brain, you know, has really fully developed. And, you know, oftentimes the, the knee jerk reaction is, you know, is to be punitive, to get on the case of that, of that young person. I do it myself. I try to catch myself and say, this is just, you know, told my kid three times to take the garbage cans out and the garbage cans aren't out, you know, it's like I can harp on her, but she just forgot, you know, and to just move on. And, and, and for us, I think as, as adults, just acknowledge that, you know, young people are, they're organisms that are still to be molding are still to be shaped. And the more positive feedback we can give them in the shaping um, you know, is, is what they're gonna is what they're gonna remember, and I think be helpful to them. So I have to say, this was uh, firstly a lot of it was fun, really uh, talking with you, and actually uh, sort of hearing about all this from different perspectives: a, a clinical social worker, a researcher, and a dad also. So, oh yeah. <laughs> anyways, so I would like to add a couple words about Young Adult Survivorship and Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. For additional resources on young adults, please visit our website, www.lls.org forward slash young adult, which includes videos about cancer survivorship and an open chat forum for young adults moderated by an oncology social worker. And for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, you can visit www.lls.org forward slash CE. For any questions or refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one -on -one support to help patients learn about blood diseases, treatments, financial, and other support resources. Anyways, with all that said, this has been a wonderful session with Dr. Brad Zebrak from the University of Michigan. Brad, thanks for being with us. You bet, Ken. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time. <laughs>